everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we discuss deep thematic points about the Parsha. This week's episode has been dedicated in memory of Basha and Label Gutman by their daughter, Sarah Waldman. They were Holocaust survivors, met and married in a displaced persons camp, and went on to build a life together in New York. Their hearts, though, were always in Israel. Their lessons and memories are very much alive in their children and family. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. This Breshit series is titled Chosenness and Choices. The book of Breshit is propelled forward by God's chosen representatives, Adam, Noach, Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, but these messengers impact the world because of the choices they make, and it is the nexus between being chosen and the human choices that actualize this divine will in the world that we are exploring in these episodes. The Yosef cycle can be divided into four sections, according to the Parshio that recount them. Parsha Vayeshev, chapters 37 through 40, includes the sale, his going down to Egypt, and his time in prison. Parshat Miketz, essentially chapters 41 to 44, includes the rise of Yosef and the brothers' initial interactions with him. Parshat Vayigash, 44 through the middle of chapter 47, includes the confrontation between the brothers, uh, Yaakov's family moves to Egypt, and Yosef's rule in Egypt. And Parshat Vayichi, uh, 47, in the middle of the chapter towards the end of Sefer Breshit, really focuses on the death of Yaakov and eventually Yosef. In Parshat Vayeshev, Yaakov favors Rachel's older son Yosef, and it creates tremendous turmoil within the family structure. Yosef's dreams do little to help the dynamic, and ultimately the brothers turn to the worst option possible, and one already considered, and successfully, done earlier in the book of Breshit, that of fratricide. Only that Yehuda's suggestion to sell Yosef thankfully derails the initial plan to kill him. The description of the brother's meal at the pit and then sales site is a particularly chilling detail, highlighting the moral low to which the brothers have sunk. To be able to eat while torturing another reflects a perverse ability to focus inward and ignore the suffering of others. Thankfully, Yosef makes it safely to Egypt, where his journey will continue to twist and turn. Chapter 38 famously interjects the sale narrative and recounts the story of Yehuda and Tamar, her essential neglect and then courageous claim of family rights. Tamar is never criticized for her behavior by the narrator, suggesting that the ends justified the means. Yehuda suffers the same losses that his father does. He loses two children, mourns a wife, and is duped. Yehuda's leadership will feature in today's conversation. The second portion of the Parsha recounts the highs and lows of Yosef's initial career in Egypt. After finding favor in the eyes of his master, Potiphar, he falls prey to Potiphar's wife's sexual scheming, which lands him in jail. It is in jail that Yosef meets the two officers of Paro, the baker and cupbearer, whose dreams he interprets and which will later be the key that releases him from prison and enables an audience with Paro. The Parsha ends on an ominous note when the cupbearer forgets Yosef and his talents and Yosef is left yet again in a pit. Yosef's life for these interim years is a painful roller coaster ride. Ultimately, a combination of divine providence and Yosef's chen and his intellectual insight will bring him to the other side of suffering. Today, I am joined by a new podcast guest, Dr. Lisa Fredman, who is a lecturer of Tanakh at Afrata College and other women's tour institutions. This year, she is a Matan Kitvuni Fellow writing about Rashi's holistic approach to the Book of Ketuvim. 
Lisa, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. And little did I know we were neighbors <laughs> at Frat Neighbors. So it's a pleasure to have you here to, to speak about Torah. Uh, as you had suggested, today we're going to focus on the figures of Reuven and Yehuda. Of course, their roles also keep circling around this question of, does anybody need to be chosen in the family of Yaakov? Uh, which is something I know we'll also be getting into in next week's episode. But why don't you sort of help us out in sort of building up the figures of who Reuven and Yehuda are? I guess we'll start in the story itself that we're looking at right now. Okay, terrific. Thanks so much. So as you mentioned, um, Yaakov's family is really a hybrid family. We have different wives, um, different groups of children, and we see that from the very beginning when um, the parsha introduces, introduces us to the Bnei Bilha, the Bnei Zilpah. So we see that there are different groups. We have a lot of children. And the question is, who's going to emerge as the family leader amongst these group of children? What qualities are going to propel one of them to greatness? And throughout the narrative, and I want to point out that the Joseph narrative, the Joseph story is something very, very unique. It spans 13 chapters. And we have an opportunity to really see a progression, a development, or, or a recurring pattern among some of the characters. So we're going to focus this morning on the characters of, of Reuven and Yehuda. I'm going to see how their leadership qualities um, keep on re- reappearing. And we're going to look at what typifies their t- different types of leadership. And the first time we're going to see this come to fruition is at the time of uh, throwing Yosef into the pit. We're going to see that there are three proposals how to basically remove Yosef from the narrative scene. They want, to, they want to remove him because obviously we know because of all the jealousy and the bad feeling they have for him. So what do the brothers say? The brothers get together and they decide when they see him from afar, we're going to kill him and then we're going to throw his body in the pit. At which point, Ruvain intervenes. And I want to read the psukim for you. Um, the words of Reuven, and then we're going to analyze them just go, for a moment. In Perik Lamed Zayin, Pesuk Chafala, verse 21, it says, Vayishma Reuven, and Reuven heard this, miyadam, and his intention is to save Yosef. Vayomer, lo nakenu nefesh, and he says, let's not kill him. Vayomer alehem, and he says to them, Reuven, al tishpachudam, don't spill blood. Hashlichu oto el habor hazeh, throw him into this pit, asher bamidbar in the desert, viyad al tishluchubo, and don't place your hands against him, leman hatzil ota miyadam lashivo el aviv, in order to save him, to return him to his father. Notice that the inclusio, the bookends, in terms of what Ruvain is saying, is to save him. Ruvain's goal is to save him. So what does he say to his brothers? He basically says, let's not kill him. And then he goes on to say, instead of committing first-degree murder and throwing him into the pit, let's just throw him into the pit, and then he'll die naturally. And if that's the case, it won't be um, as terrible a crime as if we would have killed him with our own hands. But really, we know that Ruvain's goal is what? Is to save, to save the brother. Now, it's very interesting that when Ruvain says his proposal, it says twice the word Vayomer. It says Vayomer, he says at first, let's not hurt him. And then it says again, Vayomer Alehem. And, and then he said to them, let's throw him in a pit and he'll die naturally. Why does the Tanakh say twice in a row, Vayomer? And he said, if there's no interruption in between those two statements. Generally, we have an introduction of, and he said, if someone interrupts the narrative. But no one interrupts it. So the Ramban proposes, based on something later on, that Ruvain actually had two proposals. The first proposal was, Lo Nakenu Nefesh. Let's not kill him. 
But when he saw the brother's reaction, he realized that he was not going to succeed. So he changes his proposal. And then he says to them, Vayomer Alehem Ruvain. At that point, he says to them, you know something? Let's throw him into the pit. Let's let it not be first degree murder. And then, and then um, he planned to go back to save him. Now, why is Ruvain interested in saving Yehuda? I'm sorry, in saving Yosef. What's motivating him? And clearly it would seem because, he, would seem because he's the oldest, because he's the Bahar, and he feels the responsibility for his younger brother. And later on, when he comes to the pit, he's away when the sale happens, and he sees that the pit is empty. What does he say? Vayomer, hayelet einenu, the lad is not there. Ani, ana, aniba, and what, what am I going to do? And we see here the idea that he feels this tremendous responsibility about Yosef because he is the oldest child. So the brothers accept his proposal. And as Yosef mentioned, they sit down and they have a meal and so on. And as this is transpiring, we know that then Yehuda comes and Yehuda comes and he intervenes and he says his proposal. And now I want to look at the proposal of Yehuda. Well, before you go to Yehuda's proposal, mm-hmm. I guess I just want to also interject, which is that there's always been something very jarring when it says Vayashel Ruven El Habol, that we always have this question, why did you leave? Because the sense is, is that while as the eldest child, he felt a responsibility. Also, the responsibility is clearly to his father. It's not to his brother, which is why he says that he will return him to his father. Mm-hmm. Meaning he's not, he says, meaning there is a moral claim there. Mm-hmm. But then the real impetus for saving is so that they could return mm-hmm. him to his father. Mm-hmm. Um, when the brothers sort of accept his proposal, it seems pretty clear that they're not really accepting his proposal. I mean, there's something about Ruvain's authority that already here feels very weak, also because a younger brother comes in and gives another suggestion that they're going to listen to, but also because what is that? Why would he walk away? Meaning if he's actually concerned that they're going to kill, then then why would you disappear in this scene? It seems not responsible to walk away. I mean, also, I would like to imagine that he understood that their brothers weren't utterly convinced by him or weren't utterly, didn't utterly feel bound by his authority. And so there's just always something very jarring about that. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you. And we're going to see another proof that the idea that they accept his words, but not completely. I'm mm-hmm. agreeing with you 100%. So we now move on to Yehuda's plan, and I'll read the two verses to you, and then at that point, we're going to compare it to the words of Reuven. Vayomer Yehuda elechav, and Yehuda says to his brothers, Ma betza ki naharog et achinu? What are we going to gain by killing our brother? Vechisinu et and covering his blood. All right, what are we going to gain? Meaning, there's something financial, perhaps, that we can gain from doing what, by not killing him. And chisinu et demo, we can understand in two ways. Either if we kill our brother, we're actually going to figure, we're really going to have to cover his blood when we bury him, or chisinu et demo, we're going to have to cover our tracks. So what are we going to gain from this? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. And we won't, and let's not touch him with our hands. Let's not kill him. Because he is our brother, he is our flesh. And his brothers hearkened to his voice. All right, so his proposal is not to kill him, but rather to sell him. And I want to now compare these two proposals. And I want to look at the following criteria. I want to look at the, the way they're speaking. 
Are they speaking to their brothers? Are they speaking in the first person? Are they speaking in the third person language? What is the style of the language that they're speaking in? And let's look at the content. So when we look at Reuven, we see that he, he says to them, Al tishbachu, don't, 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 don't shed blood. He also says to them, Al, don't have your hands against him. We have an imperative. No, 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 don't, don't, don't. And we also see that um, what is the, what's the contents of his words? The contents of his words are, he's taking a moral stand. Let's not do it. And when he addresses them in this imperative language, notice that he's speaking to them into the, in the second you, second person. And now let's compare this to Yehuda. When we move to Yehuda's words, what does he say? Achenu, anachnu, kisinu, besarenu. He's talking in the first person plural. We, we, why do we need to cover our blood? He is our brother. He is our flesh. Yehuda is speaking in the inclusive. He is identifying with them. He's not giving them, trying to tell them musar, which was similar to what Reuven was doing. And notice also there's no mention of the word no. He doesn't say low, low, low. He's couching everything in the affirmative. Right? Let, what, what can we gain from it as opposed to the words of Reuven? And clearly in terms of the logic, we see, first of all, he's trying to say we can gain something financially from this, from this transaction. Um, and also in terms of the, language, the content of his words, notice we have the idea of emotion. He says, no, he's our bisarenu, he is our flesh, our flesh, he is our brother. You might not feel like he's your brother, but he certainly shares the DNA with us. And so therefore, how can we do this to our own flesh and blood? So we see here that Yehuda is speaking both to the seich, both in terms of logic, and he's also speaking to their, into, and he's working on their emotions as well, that yes, we have a difficult relationship with our brother, but he is our flesh and blood. So a, a few a few thoughts in response to that. First of all, we have here obviously a classic difference between how an eldest speaks and a, and mm-hmm. a different child, right? Meaning Reuven yeah. as the elder child, I'm giving instructions. There's something very annoying about it, mm-hmm. right? Meaning yeah. it's 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 a it's a difficult stance. Whereas Yehuda knows again, particularly because he's not speaking from the higher up position of the of the eldest child. That if I include everybody in the conversation, then then this might go better. But I also think your interpretation is interesting because I re- I read it a little bit differently. When when you when the Ruven speaks, I I don't necessarily understand that the second clause of what he says is that he intends to throw him dead in the pit. Meaning when he's when he says to to put him there. Um, meaning to get, send him back alive to his Correct, father. Correct, 100%. And so, what, and so when Yehuda, so then I guess I misunderstood you, because then when Yehuda speaks, and he, and then he sort of goes and speaks as if Reuven didn't say a word. Mm-hmm. Because Reuven already came to the conclusion that we don't want to kill him, we want to treat him better, we'll deal with him temporarily, and then he'll go back to his father. And when Yehuda speaks, he speaks as if there has been no suggestion made so far. He, he, we already said right? And now he starts off with a new general thesis. What could we possibly gain by killing him? Ruvain's already suggested to not kill him. And so Yehuda sort of goes back to the initial suggestion as if Ruvain didn't just offer another another option. Do you, do you know what I say by I that? I do, but I think, I think you're misunderstanding how I'm explaining it. Meaning his original, according to the Ranban, his original proposal, Ruvain, is we shouldn't kill him. Mm-hmm. When the brothers don't agree to that, 
he comes back with a second proposal, which says, okay, we won't kill him first-degree murder, but we're going to throw him into the pit. And when he's in the pit, what's going to happen? What's understood? He's going to die. When it says, Laman miyadam, this is a very important point. He never shares. That's a piece of information. This is Ruvain's plan. Ruvain's plan is to save him himself. Mm-hmm. He never shares that with any of his brothers. He never shares his ultimate goal. Interesting. I guess in the in the in the again not going with the Ramban perhaps, but in the in the pshat mm-hmm. itself, it doesn't necessarily seem like he intends to kill him. But either way, when when Yehuda when Yehuda speaks, he speaks as if as if there wasn't another plan suggested, mm-hmm. which is like this classic way of when someone's authority isn't very strong, mm-hmm. someone else comes up who's much more charismatic, who people like to listen to, they don't even have to relate to the previous suggestion mm-hmm. because no one's really going to listen anyways. So you see something very strong here in the in the power dynamic in, in those yeah. in those nuances yeah. that you suggested. I agree with you. And what's interesting here is that at the end of the, um, his declaration, his proposal, Yehuda, it says, Vayishm'u echav. His brothers yes, listened exactly. to him. Not by Ruvain. Now they listened to Ruvain too. They threw him into the pit while he was still alive. Mm-hmm. Yet it doesn't say Vayishmu. Yeah. Yeah, so we see much. here there's something about the way Yehuda speaks. There's something about the content of his words that the, 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 the brothers really listen and they internalize what Yehuda is saying. Mm-hmm. And I just want to raise the question why is Yehuda interceding at all? After all, he's not the Bahar. What, push, what, what propels him to try to save? Yehuda, to try, try to save Yosef from death. Um, and I think that underneath the surface, there is the idea of the Bechorah, because Reuven was the firstborn, and then we have Shimon and Levi, and then comes Yehuda. And Shimon and Levi, we do know, because the story with Dina and the story of Shechem, they're sort of out of the picture now in terms of um, Their meriting, favor. meriting, mm-hmm. meriting the, um, the firstborn status. And, it's, and who would then be the next in line? It's Yehuda. So it could be that Yehuda, um, somewhere deep down inside, um, feels like perhaps that he's capable, feels that perhaps he is more deserving um, of the firstborn than Ruvain. We'll never know exactly, but he does intercede in trying to save Yosef, and he is believed by his brothers more than Ruvain is. So we see that in terms of round one, um, Yehuda is the more successful one. Um, There's something about the content and the style of the way he speaks um, that has that has more of an impact on his brothers, um, and they acquiesce to his leadership. And then um, we move on in the story, and the story progresses. Yehuda ends up in Egypt. Uh, I'm sorry, Yosef ends up in Egypt, and then there's the t- and then there's the famine, and ultimately the family of Yo- of Yaakov has to come to Egypt and try to and to try to buy to have bread right for the family to bring food back to Egypt. And so years later, they come to Egypt, and they end up coming before Yosef, and Yosef recognizes them. And of course, they don't recognize Yosef, and he's going to put them through all kinds of uh, charades and, and uh, not such fun games. In any event, what's going to happen is he's going to allow them to go back to Canaan with bread, with food, but he's going to place, he's going to incarcerate um, Shimon in jail. And he's going to demand for the brothers to bring back their younger brother, Binyamin, if they want to ever come back again and to receive more food. Um, and so the brothers return to, from Egypt. They're going back to Canaan. And then they open up their sacks when they're at, their, at some rest stop. And they find the money that they paid for the food in Egypt. They find it back in their bags. And obviously, they're, they're traumatized by this whole experience. They come back to Canaan. And at the end, chapter Membet, they start telling their father all that happened. 
And they explain to their father that unless they bring Binyamin back to Egypt with them, they're not going to be able to buy any more bread, and that Shimon is there in jail. Okay, one of the brothers had to be left behind. And at this point, it's going to be a challenge. How are they going to convince their father to let Binyamin go down to Egypt? And we know this unique relationship that Yaakov had with Binyamin, the only surviving child from his beloved Rachel. After all, at this point, Yosef has disappeared. And so at this point, we're going to see the two brothers who are going to try to convince their father. It's going to be Reuven and Yehuda. And so immediately upon returning from Egypt, it's Reuven who's going to intervene and try to get his father to send down Binyamin. So Reuven turns to his father in Pesuk Lamezayin and says, Vayomer Reuven el aviv lemor, et shnei vanai tamit imlo avienu elecha. He says to his father, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring Binyamin back with me. Give Binyamin to me, place him in my hands, and I will return him to you. This is the proposal that Ruvain makes, trying to convince his father to send Binyamin down to Mitzrayim. And the proposal is very, very strange, obviously. What does he say? If I don't return him safely, you can kill my two sons. And Rashi obviously says on the spot, what does Rashi say? Yaakov did not agree to the words of his son Reuven. Reuven seems like it's a very, very silly comment. He's offering that he will kill his sons. And what, these are not Yaakov's grandsons? So there's something irrational about what Reuven is saying. I'll also say that it connects him to two other really negative stories where people offered up their own children. It mm-hmm. connects us to the story of Sdom and to its mirror image of the story of Philegish Begivat, where you have a parent who offers up their children to be harmed. And it's, I mean, I'm just highlighting how, how odd it is. It's really... Yeah, it's, it's very odd. Some modern scholars point out that perhaps we have here the idea in the ancient world, like an eye for an eye, mm-hmm. the idea that if he doesn't bring yeah. back Benjamin alive, so therefore his children will be killed. But certainly that's not in the, that's not in the spirit of Judaism, that, that, that idea. Um, it's important to note once again, though, that Reuven is the first to intervene, right? He's the first to speak, like we saw earlier at, this ta- at the time of the sale, right? He was the first one to propose his proposal. I'll also just refer us back to one pasuk in, earlier in the parak, where, where we have Reuven again in that sort of a little bit of like an annoying eldest child says in, in pasuk hafbet, uh, when when again they're they're trying to figure out how something so horrible could happen and they could end up with the money and they realize they'd be framed as thieves and vayan ruven otam lemor halo amarti alechem lemor al techatu sticha techetu vayeled velo shematem vagam demo hinei nidrash right and he says I told you all the time you know all the way back then it also by the way preserves the twice vayomer like you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, and he said, I told you not to do this, right? And they didn't know that Yosef was hearing. And like, so we also hear like sort of like a flashback. And, and it seems that there was more of an effort to convince that was really just conveyed earlier in the Sukim. But again, it just, no one responds to Reuven. Like mm-hmm. no one listens to him. No one really, no one mm-hmm. really cares. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so, we'll, so we see here, obviously, that Reuven's proposal is not accepted by his father. He's not going to send Benjamin down to Mitzrayim to... Uh, to endanger the, two, the lives of his two grandsons. Um, and then time passes, and we move to the beginning of chapter Mem Gimel, and we're told, and the famine intensifies. 
And there was no more vayi kasher kilu le'echol et hashever asher heviyu mimitzrayim. And there was no more food in the refrigerator. All the, all the food that they had brought back from Egypt had finished. And at this point, we have Yehuda who intervenes. And if we skip to those who have a chumash in front of them to pasuk chet, what does Yehuda say? He has a very, very, quite, quite a long um, speech here, but we're going to skip to pasuk chet. Vayomer Yehuda el Yisrael aviv. And Yehuda said to his father Yisrael, Shilcha hanar iti, send the lad with me. V'nakuma v'nelecha v'nichye v'lonamut. And we will get up and we will go and we will not die. Gamanachnu, gamata, gamtapenu, us, you, and our children. Anochi ervenu, I commit. Miyadi tivakshenu, from my hand, you can be sure he, I, you can, I will protect him. Imlo hevitiv elecha, vitzaktiv lefanecha, and if I do not return him, vechatati lecha kol hayamim, I will be, um, I will be guilty all the days of my life. So he personally commits to returning Binyamin. And I want to now compare the two proposals once again of Reuven and Yehuda. Let's look at the time frame. Reuven spoke to his father immediately uponing from Egypt, returning from Egypt, when they still had food. Whereas Yehuda waits, he displays patience, mm. and he wait, waited until what? Hara'av kaved ba'aretz. It was very, there was no food left. It was, a very, it was a dire situation. Um, let's look at the consequences of the action. We know that Reuven said, if I don't return Binyamin, you can kill my two sons. Notice, what does Yehuda say? I take responsibility, personal responsibility, if I do not return Binyamin. In terms of the logic of both of the proposals, we saw there was something irrational about what Reuven was saying as opposed to the proposal of Yehuda, which is more, more logical. I am taking personal responsibility. We also have the collective speech that you noticed right. earlier, right? The collective speech. for everybody. It's, it's, a, it's a team effort. It's a team effort. And notice also something very beautiful. Reuven focuses on death. You can kill my two sons. Mm. Whereas Yehuda focuses on life. We will live and we will not die. And as Yosef has said, the focus is on the whole family, on the collective. Gamanachnu, gamata, gamtapenu. And so we see here that um, Yaakov will accept Yehuda's proposal, not happily. It's very hard for him to part with Binyamin, but he will send Binyamin to, to, to Mitzrayim. And so we see at this point, if we just look to a little bit of a mini-summary, what typifies Ruvain's proposals? He's the first to respond. He's quick to react. But we see a bit of rashness or impulsivity, and perhaps his um, proposals are less thought out. And he, transfer the, he transfers the consequence to others of his decision. My two sons will die. Whereas Yehuda's proposals, the timing, he takes into consideration the timing. He waits with patience. Um, he's inclusive in his language. And he's taking personal responsibility on himself and not trying to, to, to forward it to somebody else. I think it's also interesting. We have always this question about chronology of when the story of Yehuda and Tamar takes place. But Yehuda's already lost two children. And I think chronologically, it's, it's either in the past or in the very uh, long, long uh, past. 
Uh, and so this, there's something even more jarring about Reuven's suggestion because meaning the other, the other potential leader here has already been through that kind of loss. I'm curious how you look at the story of Yudan Tamar in, in this trajectory, because as you're presenting it now, the speech of Yehuda in the, the sales site and this, and this sort of suggestion made to Yaakov is something that is rather consistent. I'm curious how you fit in there in the mix, the story of Yudan Tamar. Okay, so that's a perfect question because I want to go on to one other subtle comparison between our two major characters, Ruben and Yudah. Mm-hmm. And that subtle comparison, I say it's subtle because, first of all, the stories are right, not next, they're not next to each other, and it's not exactly the same scene, but it's an episode that I would call um, questionable sexual behavior or sec- a questionable sexual encounter. We'll start with Ruben. Earlier on in Perek Lamed Hay, we read about an mm. episode where he ostensibly sleeps with Yaakov's Pelegesh, Bilha. In Perek Lamed Hay, Pesuk Chavbet, and we'll, it's a very, very strange, I'll just give me one moment, we'll read it together. We're told, um, And Ruvain went and he slept with his father's concubine, and his father heard, and then the Pasuk tells us that Yaakov's children are 12 and tells us, you know, the names. It's unclear what happened here. According to Peshad, it could be that he actually slept with his father's concubine. According to Chazal, he didn't sleep with his concubine, but he moved around the beds um, after Rachel's death. Um, and that's something, obviously, which is very, very improper. In any event, we just see here that there's some kind of improper sexual questionable sexual encounter. With an attempt, though, to make his position in the family stronger. I mean, he wants his mother to become more prominent. The byproduct of that is that he will be stronger. And if you read it from the shot of the story, which I agree, it's very elliptical, this little nugget here. We don't really know the fullness of the story. Um, that one of the reasons why people would sleep with someone's concubine is to show their dominance in the family. So we have that, of course, later in Sefer Shmuel and Melachim, uh, Doniahu and others. So, you know, it fits in with this right. kind of off effort to assert right. his position. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, the story of Adaf Shalom too, sleeping with yeah. the, the concubines um, of his father, David. Yeah. All right, and and notice here that there's no response from Reuven. We have this action and there's no response. And if we now go to the story of Yehuda and Tamar, where also it's a bit of a questionable um, encounter, although we know, of course, from this encounter, eventually will come the, the, the line of the Mashiach. So it's something which is deemed positive. But as it's happening, perhaps we can raise some questions. Well, one thing that's very, very noticeable about this encounter is that Yehuda takes and accepts responsibility. Mm-hmm. When Tamar sends this, the symbols, um, and he could, he could turn his head and pretend he doesn't know, he said, meni. she is more righteous than I. So we see here again the idea of accepting responsibility, personally accepting responsibility, something that we've seen earlier um, in the last episode between um, sending, with, sending Benjamin down to Egypt. Um, and the last, I think, juncture in our story, if we go back to the Joseph story. Um, Wait, I just want to interrupt one more thing, that the whole crux of this story of Yudan Tamar is that he didn't want to lose his third child, meaning he thought that that in some way, as Chazal call her Isha Kathanit, there's something about Tamar that was sort of cursed the lives of his children. Mm-hmm. And it's another element that sort of strengthens this, the contrast through Uven, meaning he goes through what seems to be inappropriate at the end, meaning he was supposed to give her Shela, 
but he doesn't want to lose his child. Mm-hmm. And so it aligns him again more with with Yaakov and those who are connected to their children and furthers him away from mm-hmm. Reuven, who in uh, you know, coming chapters will offer yeah. up his children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very nice. Um, if we return back to the story of Yosef, um, the last um, episode that I want to talk about just for a moment is they bring down Benjamin to Egypt. And um, as they leave Egypt, he's framed. And we know that the 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 the, the gavia the um, cup the goblet is placed in Benjamin's sack, and then they're all brought back to Egypt, and Benjamin is going to have to be a slave for Paro forever. At which point we have the very very um, uh, emotional address where um, Yehuda steps forward by Igash Elav Yehuda, and he speaks to Paro, and he basically describes the picture of what will happen if Benjamin is left there forever. And he focuses on his address on the old, the old father who will, who's there in Canaan and Canaan who will be heartbroken if the child is not returned. And at that point, he promises to, he's, he's willing to trade places with Benjamin. He um, asks to switch places. He wants to take responsibility for the actions and put him, himself in the place of Benjamin. And so here again, we see the leadership of Yehuda coming forward with a proposal that is logical, which takes responsibility. And notice here that there's no mention of Reuven. Reuven has disappeared from the narrative stage. It's at this point where it's clear that Reuven's leadership skills, his set of skills, are not the appropriate ones to lead the family, and therefore he just sort of disappears from the scene. And it's Yehuda who comes forward with tremendous bravery. And at this point, he so touches, his words so touch Yosef, that Yosef reveals himself. At this point, he's going to reveal himself to his brothers. I think that there's also two elements that sort of fall by the wayside at this point in the story. One is this idea that we had in the previous generations that there was going to have to be one person who propels the family forward. We realize in this generation that that idea is no longer viable. We don't need it. We, we're not in the patriarchal period anymore, really, right? Yosef or, or even Yehuda, they're not going to be patriarchs. They're going to be part of the Shvatim. So we've sort of been able to leave it on the side. And we've also left on the side this whole, the Bechor has, meaning in all the other stories, we had to flip the idea. The Bechor should be, mm-hmm. and therefore we have to flip it on its head because somebody else was going to get the position. But in this generation, there wasn't any overt uh, flipping on the part of the of the previous generation of the parents, it was the children themselves that figured it out, meaning the person who was most naturally going to be a leader, Yehuda in one capacity and Yosef in another, they're the ones who naturally rise within the family structure. But so it's a very big shift from the earlier generations that we, we don't have to pretend anymore that there's something really significant about the Bechorah, and we also don't have to try and whittle it down to one guy. We can have two guys and it'd be okay. Right, 100%. Um, we're going to see that really the leadership is going to divide between Yosef and also Yehuda. Um, and right, we have here, and we have a natural transfer of leadership. Yeah, there's no violence. Um, it's a peaceful transfer, which is very, very different than what we've seen, like you said earlier in Sefer Brachit. Um, I just want to point out that at this point, it's clear to the to the brothers who's the leader. And it's also clear to the father who's the leader. Mm-hmm. And on his deathbed, we know that when he blesses his children, the blessing that he's going to give to Reuven um, in chapter Memtet, what does he say? Reuven, b'choriata, Reuven, you are my firstborn. Kochi v'reshit oni, my might and the first fruit of my of vigor. Yetr se'et, exceeding in rank. 
v'yeter oz, exceeding in honor, pachaz kamayim al-totar, but unstable as water, you excel no longer. Ki alita mishkave avicha, for when you mounted your father's bed, az chilalta yitzuwe ala, you brought disgrace, my couch, by, by mounting my, my couch. So we see here the, the trait which is being focused on in terms of Ruvain is his impetuous nature, the rashness in terms, how he, in terms of how he acted, which we've seen throughout the stories, and therefore um, that firstborn status will be divided among, among others. Whereas with Yehuda, he's going to bless Yehuda, um, and he's going to say to Yehuda, your brothers shall praise you. And we see that already his brothers have naturally accepted his leadership upon themselves. Your hand shall be on the head, at the nape of your foes. Your father's, will shall, shall, your father's sons will bow low to you. From prey, my son, you have risen up. That's alluding to the sale of Yosef. And then, of course, he's then given the promise of malchut, of kingship, lo yasur shevim yuda. The scepter of kingship will not depart from you. So what do we see? We see that, I, I think we see that the firstborn certainly affords certain advantages to the children. But ultimately, it's going to be the merit of their actions, which, which in terms of um, propels them to leadership. And the choice of their actions, the choice of their words that make all the difference. I think also just the big the big shift and what we've seen at this point is that again it does I, I'm going back to the point you made is that there doesn't have to be a struggle surrounding it and that it was such a cause of bitterness and also it's much healthier that the parents don't have to get involved because when when Yaakov gives these blessings or curses some of them he's kind of just reinforcing what we already know about them mm-hmm. which is the way it should be as opposed to these pronouncements I'm thinking yeah. of Yaakov and Esav and it creates such such you know near fratricide mm-hmm. between them so there's just something and I that I think we see the the progression and the growth in Sefer Breshit of all of our our biblical heroes is that it should be from the ground up right that they should mm-hmm. be able to choose among themselves who is the most natural leader. And so I, I think that's yes. such an important point. Much, much healthier, much healthier. Yeah. Um, and just it's interesting to note that these characteristics that we find in Ruvain and also in Yehuda, they express themselves later on in Jewish history, later on in the Tanakh. If we look at Ruvain, um, it's interesting in Sefer Bamidbar, when we read the story of the two and a half tribes that want to um, inherit land on the eastern side of the Ardain, Ruvain, God, and Chatzi, Shevet Menasheh, um, they come forward and they say to Moshe Rabbeinu, the, the two tribes, the, second, the half tribe is added later on, we want to stay here. And Moshe's initial reaction is very, very negative. He's critical. He's concerned that it will demoralize the rest of the nation, but they promise that they'll do all that they have to do. They'll cross over the Jordan, they'll, they'll, they'll fight with the rest of the, of the warriors, and then, then they'll return and inherit their land. Um, but the idea that they... Um, that they wanted to stay there. Initially, that's a little bit of a rash decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, in the book of Mishle, there's a verse um, in Perekhaf, Pesukhaf Aleph, which says the following, Nachala mevohelet barishona, v'acharita lo tivorach. An inheritance may be acquired hastily in the beginning, but its end will not be blessed. Mm. And Rashi applies this Pesuk to Ruvain and God. And I want to point out when the two tribes come forward, who's the first one named among the two tribes? Ruvain, right there again. And what does Rashi tell us about this Pasuk and Sefer Mishle? 
which he says, which one hastened to take hurriedly? The sons of God and the sons of Reuven, who hastened to take their share on the other side of the Jordan, and they spoke hastily, as it says, we want to build sheepholds for our cattle here and cities for our children. They made the main thing of secondary import, for they placed their flocks before their children, but its end will not be blessed, for they were exiled many years before the rest of the tribes. So here I see this, this um, characteristic of hastiness sometimes um, is something which is going to bring, bring them down. You also get the feeling, and this is a psychological analysis that, you know, bears no weight except I'm just going to share it, which is that there's something in the fact that Ruven, he tries to rule over and he's not successful. And then as a tribe, they say, well, if we're not going to be ruling over this group, then we might as well separate from mm, them. I mean, there's something there. It's sort of a, I don't know if it's a defense mechanism, but it's sort of, well, this isn't worth my time. So I might as well be a little bit selfish and say, this is what's good for me. Anyways, we're no, we don't seem to be working as a group because as a group, I want to be the superior and you're not accepting my my authority. So I think that that's just also interesting how that mm-hmm. how that plays out. And we do know that it's and it's problematic. And in the follow-up to that story, in the end of Sefer Yoshua, when when they think that they're doing Avodah Zarah, right? They, they really think that mm. there's an altar that was built there and, and they're not doing the right thing. And there's something about Ruven that constantly doesn't come across well. Do you know? And we know lots of people like that, right? We know lots of people who have really good intention, but there's something in their delivery is just mm-hmm. makes them not successful. Mm-hmm. And it's always hard to sort of pinpoint what that is, but I feel like you really get that, mm-hmm. that kind of character shaping from Ruven. Mm-hmm. Ruven was, he's a good man, right? He wants to do good things. He loves his brother. He loves his father. But there's something that just comes up as underwhelming mm-hmm. about him definitely, sometimes. Definitely agree. Agree. Yeah. And in contrast, if we look at the, the, the continuation from the line of Yehuda, we see many, many leaders that emerge from the, from the tribe of Yehuda who show tremendous responsibility. Um, David HaMelech, um, we know that he has some tremendous sins during his lifetime, but he redeems himself by accepting responsibility upon himself like his forefather Yehuda. Um, and so, too, we see in the story of Megillat Rut, Boa is a descendant also of Shevet Yehuda. Um, we see him also accepting responsibility and making and helping Rut, okay, mm-hmm. ensure her future. So um, it's interesting how these, this DNA, in a sense, passes down from generation to generation. Um, and just, I think, in terms of the qualities that we talked about, and if we took a, talk about modern leadership, many of the qualities that we talked about, I think, are also very, very important in leaders today. Um, whether we saw with Yehuda the idea of fostering a feeling of camaraderie, being part of the people, being aware of their needs, their desires, and their circumstances with them, not being above them, not acting alone. Um, if you remember that Yehuda emphasized when he's trying to save Yosef, he says, our brother, our flesh, um, he, try, he was trying to spin a little bit how the brothers looked at Yosef. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of being a leader is also being able to change the nation's perception of certain things when the leader feels like the perception is incorrect. We also saw the idea that Yehuda framed things in the positive, in the affirmative, and how important it is that a leader projects optimism. Um, I think we're going through very, very difficult times today, now, in Eretz Yisrael, um, and we know the reality, but when we, have a, when we have a leader that tries to talk in a positive, gives a positive sense, that certainly helps the nation. Um, we also saw the importance of timing, acting properly at the crucial time. Very often they, that makes a difference between success and failure. And ultimately, the most important criteria, I believe, is accepting responsibility as a leader. 
and not trying to transfer it to somebody else. So um, let's hope I don't want to get too political, but I guess yeah. I'd say we're still waiting. We're right. waiting to find right. some Yehudah-like right. leaders. We've been lacking tremendously yes. in hope. all of those traits that yeah. you've uh, uh, Yeah, I'm agreeing. Let's hope and pray that we'll merit a leader like that. And in merit Amen. of that leader, they'll lead us to a new and a better future. Amen. Lisa, thank you for this conversation. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.